Breakfast, Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We, we pay respect to their elders past and present and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. We recognize the, that sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. I'm Sonera, and I'm here with Grace today. Good morning, Grace. Good morning, Sonera. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We've been good. Um, I would, I would, uh, sorry, what? We've been good. Sorry, I've been good. Um, not, not sure how you've been, but, um, but I, I can tell, like, um, with the past days from meeting you, you've been quite tired as well. Same as oh, me. Oh yeah, yeah. It's just, um, you know, recently, um. You know, we've uh, I've had like you know changes to my schedule because um, of Ramadan, mm-hmm. and so um, that's kind of you know impacted how the rest of the month and uh, the next month is going to be for me. Yeah, yeah. and oh my god, it's, it's definitely like worse as well because um, you is I would say like uni uni is like the uni is like taking taking a toll of our time especially this month because like mm. it's towards the mid-semester break and yeah. then yet yeah all of the first assignments are starting to get due so yeah mm. we have to keep up for that um yeah so what do we have today on the show oh i think we, we definitely have quite a lot um i think first stop is going to be from you yeah first stop um We're going to be talking about Ramadan, actually, um, and I'm going to be talking to Ayman Islam from the Center for Muslim Health and Wellbeing um, about um, mental health in Ramadan and why it's important to take care of your mental health or, um, you know, if you should fast or not, um, you know, depending on how you're feeling. And so we'll be listening to that first. and then we have a segment from Claudia, who's going to be talking about um, comfort women in the um, Philippines. Just um, a heads up before we listen to that, um, there is a, trig- a content warning um, because just, um, it, it, yeah, content warning because it discusses um, stories of, um, you know, sexual violence and you know if it's not your cup of tea you can tune it out but and we'll let you know um beforehand so yeah please take note of that and then next up um no before that i uh, just wanted to clarify claudia brought us this special from giselle hannah from tcr's accent of women program and giselle spoke with sharon kabusu uh, silva who is the executive director of lula 
Filipina, which is an organization striving for the justice and peace for Filipino comfort women. And yeah, they basically experienced sexual violence by Japanese military men during the occupation in World War II. So yes, that would be the segment. And then coming up after that, I will be speaking to Executive Director of Victorian National Parks Association, Math, Math, um, Ruchel, about VMPA's launch application to save the critically endangered um, stonefly, and yeah, we're going to see what's going to happen from that. And then lastly, I'll be speaking to the Managing Director of MediaNet and MediaNet Insights, Amrita Shidhu, about the recent survey uh, findings that got released on journalists' views on defamation laws, average pay, employment and challenges, and why public interest journalism is being threatened in Australia. So yeah, we've got quite a range of very... Um, different topics. Different topics, very big and also very interesting ones to look at as well yeah i'm um especially interested in um sorry uh yours um uh, which was about the um journalists uh the survey on journalists and as emerging journalists i think it's very interesting to see uh what came out of it um some of it's pretty um scary i think yeah i mean the survey the survey was only just put out about yesterday and then like I mean the findings of the survey and then yeah from that I could really tell like a lot of journalists feel that the journalism the media the media industry especially with like what they can do is really it's being is being being threatened a lot and so yeah we're gonna let's let's hear what the results will tell us later and then also yeah the whole thing about the Comfort Women in the Philippines. Obviously, this is a very sensitive topic for for some people. So yes, please remember if you do feel uncomfortable or and not up to listening to the segment later, please feel free to tune in about fifteen minutes after. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, we'll just be back after a short break. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter.
You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. It's now seven, ten past seven, and we will be going into、um, another interview. So recently, millions of Muslims around the world have started abstaining from food and water in、uh, for Ramadan. If you're unfamiliar with Ramadan, it's it basically takes place in the ninth month of the Islamic calendar when Muslims fast from sunrise till sunset for the entire month. We'll soon hear from the executive officer of the Center of Muslim,、uh, the Center for Muslim Health and Wellbeing, Ayman Islam, as he discusses mental health during Ramadan and culturally appropriate mental health support for Muslims in Australia. Let's take a listen. Hello, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. I'm Sunera, and right now I'm joined by Ayman Islam. Who is the executive officer of the Center for Muslim Health and Wellbeing? Thank you, Ayman, for joining us today. Thanks, Sanara. Hi, everyone. Lovely to be here today. Yeah. So, first of all,、um, to explain to our non-Muslim listeners,、um, why do Muslims fast for an entire month every year, and、uh, what is Ramadan basically? Sure. So, look, Ramadan is basically the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, which is a bit, a little bit different to the、uh, Gregorian calendar.、Um, it's a sacred month for Muslims,、um, and it's one of the five、uh, pillars of Islam. It's a month where、um, Muslims, if they are able to, are obligated to、um, fast, so abstain from eating.、Um, Eating or drinking anything from sunset to to sunrise,、um, and they do it generally for thirty、um, days of that entire month,、um, which I know can be quite、uh, shocking for a lot of people. But、um, it's、uh, really the the objective of Ramadan is、um, to build your connection with、um, with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, God,、um, who is our Creator. So it's really the the main focus of that month is really around. Focusing on building that connection and building that consciousness of God, and we do that through tests such as,、um, you know,、uh, not eating for for the month, as well as many other things. So Ramadan isn't just about、um, abstaining from food; it's also about, you know,、um, giving to charity or, or improving upon your character, improving upon yourself,、um, improving upon your know, relations with your family and friends and others. So. Um, often you'll find Muslims tend to often be on their their best behaviour during this particular month,、um, trying to、um, you know please、um, God and everything that they do.、Um, another way of explaining Ramadan for、um, those people that love footy and we all do here in、uh, Victoria is that it's it's considered like a, a spiritual preseason, so it's really setting you up.、Um, you're doing all the work in Ramadan, you're doing the prayer, the fasting, increasing good deeds, reading Quran, all those kind of things, setting you up for the year ahead. Um, so that's really the way I like to look at it as well. Yeah, and I was just wondering, in what circumstances can you not fast? Yeah, look, I mean, there, there are a number of different circumstances which you're allowed to abstain from fasting. Obviously,、um, if you have medical conditions that you know、um, that affect your ability, so. Um, to fast, that's considered、um, a reason for not being able to fast.、Um, obviously, pregnancy as well.、Um, also,、uh, mental health issues as well. That that、uh, you know anything that、uh, 
makes you unable to, you know, fulfill the duty of fasting. You're able to, there, there are reasons in the religion for that you can abstain from fasting. That's right. And look, um, I should also say that it's pretty, uh, in terms of, uh, flexibility as well, you know, you shouldn't really just focus on, on fasting as well. There are other ways to make the most of Ramadan as well. So it's not just um, abstaining from food. There are other things that people can do um, to make the most of the month, which includes things like it might be reading uh, more of the Quran or increasing good deeds or or doing other, other things as well, maybe giving uh, money to charity as well. And, you know, amongst those things, um, why is, you know, is why is keeping your mental health in check important during ramadan like can it affect your fasting yeah look absolutely um it can because look i mean if you're thinking about um ramadan and, and the way where it kind of transpires you know you're abstaining from food um and often your your um uh your sleep is is, is distract, uh, disrupted as well because you're you're waking up quite early um for suhoor of course some people also wake for the early morning prayers but you're also after breaking fast um a lot of muslims will go to the mosque to pray um their nightly prayers which are which are called the tarawih prayers so you're having a, a significant sort of disruption in your in your routine and i think a significant disruption in your in your sleep and that can you know cause um you know people uh, you know, it's an irritability. You can have, you know, difficulty concentrating and other things like that. Um, for someone, uh, that has a mental health issue, um, it can exacerbate that again. Um, because when you're, when you're fasting, um, there's also that, abs- uh, abstaining from medication as well. So, you know, some people, their medication schedule might change, um, which can cause complications as well. And then, uh, if you couple that with lack of sleep, it can often, you know, cause, um, you know, um, a lot of issues around depression and, and anxiety as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, about um, having like a different schedule to um, what you'd normally do for the rest of the year. Um, I feel like uh, if you're a Muslim immigrant and most, uh, a lot of Australians, uh, a lot of Muslim, uh, like Muslims in Australia are, um, you know, from immigrant families or from, you know, a cultural and linguistically diverse community, you know, those, uh, a lot of immigrants may have come from countries that would like better accommodate, um, this schedule because, you know, it's all, a lot of it's, uh, a lot of them are from like Muslim majority, um, countries. So coming to Australia, it, it might be like, you know, harder to, um, deal with, uh, or like to get through Ramadan. And I was just wondering, you know, what are the other challenges that Muslims in Australia can face when uh, participating in Ramadan? Um, especially, you know, the fact that a lot of um, them who are immigrants, especially first generation immigrants and, you know, international students, they might not um, be used to participating in Ramadan without their extended family and community. Yeah, look, I mean, I think... You know, Muslims make up about 3% of the um, wider Australian population. Population It's the same in, in Victoria. So we're definitely the minority here. Um, so definitely the way that, you know, uh, it is celebrated in a Muslim-majority country is quite different here. And, you, and, and quite rightly, as you pointed out, there are a lot of uh, migrants. There are a lot of international students. There's a lot of new converts to the faith as well. Um, 
that you know are experiencing Ramadan for the first time, and it, it can be challenging if you've come from an environment where you know um, people are celebrating Ramadan. You can see it on the streets; um, it's part of everyday you know life. Um, to coming to a country where you're not seeing that as much, so you know loneliness does present you know um, a significant sort of issue. So, but I do I do think you know what people can do is that you know there are a lot of um, you know mosques and um, uh, community-based groups that are trying to sort of combat a lot, a lot of that by doing um, community-based iftar. So iftar is the breaking of the fast that you do when when the sun sets. So often you'll find a lot of different mosques and centres will have um, open community iftars where people can come in um, and join them. So to create a community-like feel as well. You've got um, particular organisations running um, convert-specific iftars as well. Again, uh, just to encourage people to come together. Um, you know, Ramadan is also, you know, a, a time where community does come together. So, um, you will try to, you will see lots of events trying to encouraging people to bring, bringing people together either in the mosque, either, you know, to, to gather, to eat or to, or to pray or to supplicate. So there's a lot of those things. There's also, you know, um, you know, opportunities to, you know, um, there's online groups that have been set up as well, um, to try to, you know, that, that period where, where we all went through the pandemic, you know, we had, um, instances of like virtual iftars and trying to use technology as a way to, while we were isolated to try to combat some of those issues. But look, definitely if you're, if you're isolated or if you're feeling lonely, look, look out for, um, some of those community iftars in your area. I think, um, most, uh, most areas will have those things or, Reach out to someone if you if you're if you're struggling as well. But yeah, it 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 can present a challenge. Yeah, most areas, especially in Melbourne and Sydney, will have them. And you know, universities. I think my university also has um, hmm. iftars yeah. uh, on some nights, not every night, but still, it's a good way to just kind of talk to the Muslims at your uni and just get to know them as well. So. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Universe is another like good, good place to find yeah, places to connect as well. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what advice um, would you give to people who like, you know, they can be recent converts or they can be like um, non-Muslims as well. But there are people that are like curious about Ramadan and they might be wanting to give um, fasting and Ramadan a go. What advice would you give to them? Uh, go, go, go and explore. Um, so these, these open iftars aren't just for, um, for, uh, Muslims only. It's actually open to the community. And often you'll find a lot of, um, people that, um, might be homeless or, um, that come into, into, uh, that are invited and come into these iftars as well. But it's also a time for people, um, you know, mosques are, you know, are open doors. Um, they're public places of worship. So I'd encourage them to go in, particularly at this time. As I said, Muslims tend to also be on their best behavior during this particular month. So they're, they're incredibly welcoming, incredibly hospitable. So it's really a good chance for you to go in and, and share and learn a little bit more about, um, Islam and about the religion. And you'll find that, you know, there are also a lot of sort of other sort of iftars, you know, there's a lot of interfaith iftars. So iftars with different faith and all that just to try to encourage more of that kind of dialogue, um, between faith. But yeah, the first thing I would say is look, really, um, I would encourage you if you haven't to go go in um, to go and visit your local mosque. They would be more than I'm 100 percent sure that they're more be more than happy to accommodate you to have you to share some of the food and talk to you a little bit about why they're fasting and and some of the some of the traditions um, in the in the in the religion. 
Yeah, and just a last question before we go. Um, I know that the Centre for Muslim Health and Wellbeing is still a fairly new initiative, but I just wanted to know where Muslims can go to like, get help for mental health and how the centre can help specifically. Yeah, so look, for us, the Centre for Muslim Wellbeing is really an organisation that was set up around um, early intervention and um, looking at um, improving mental health literacy among um, Muslim communities and diverse communities at large. So we're not uh, a clinic as such, so we don't do um, treatment for people which ha- who might have mental, uh, mental health issues. But what we do offer is we have a health navigation service, so you can contact us if you're having trouble and you need some support, you need to be, um, you, you might be suffering from um, depression or you, need, you need some help, we might be able to help navigate you to find you the right level of support um, and one that is culturally appropriate as well. That's really, really important because, you know, a lot of um, services these days um, may not be culturally appropriate and hence um, may not be appropriate for the person. Um, the other thing that we have is we have a list of practitioners um, up on our website as well. So um, it's a collection of about 50 plus different um, health practitioners, um, psychologists, psychiatrists, occupational therapists, counsellors, and others um, in that kind of mental health sphere um, that are all um, culturally um, safe uh, and open for the community to, to go and access and, and and reach out to if they if they need some support. So I'd encourage them to um, you know reach out to, uh, either call our navigator um, hotline or to go onto our website at cmw.org.au and you'll find the information around the the practitioner list there. But you'll also find some helpful information around you know um, you know navigating Ramadan with a mental illness. You know some of the things to look out for, some things that you can do. Um, there's some information around, um, you know, uh, recently, obviously, you know, the, the earthquakes in, in, in Syria and Turkey and looking at how to, you know, post-crisis intervention and, and dealing with collective trauma events. So there's a lot of different information there. So if you're interested in that or if you're interested in Muslim mental health in, in general, I encourage you to go and, and have a look at the, the website. Yeah, and um, thank you for all that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Hope you have a great uh, and fulfilling Ramadan this year. Uh, Ramadan Mubarak for all this celebrating. Ramadan Mubarak. Thank you so much. And that was Ayman Islam from the Center for Muslim Health and Wellbeing. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis or just need mental health, um, if you're experiencing any um, in-demand help, please call Lifeline at 131114. You can also head to the Center for Muslim Health and Wellbeing's website to find culturally appropriate mental health resources and a list of Muslim mental health professionals to contact. And that's at cmw.org.au. And next up, we're going to hear about, um, sorry, before that, um, just in this next segment, please note that um, this segment discusses stories of a sexual nature. If this isn't your cup of tea right now, you can tune out for the next 15 minutes or choose to listen back to the podcast at a time of your choosing. Um, it also references sexual assault, which may be triggering, so please take care. 
Um, next up, we're going to hear about the actions of Filipino comfort women who are demanding justice in relations to crimes of sexual violence in World War II. Giselle Hanna from 3CR's Accent of Women spoke to Sharon Cabasso Silva, in, uh, the, who's the executive director of Lila Filipina, an organization of Filipina comfort women and victim survivors striving for justice and free, uh, freedom and peace. Here's Giselle. On March the 4th this year, Lila Filipina, an organization of Filipino comfort women, held a protest action in Manila to call on the Japanese government to finally address the calls for justice of Filipino comfort women who were victims of Japanese wartime military sex slavery. Japan recently presented its official human rights report to the United Nations Human Rights Council, but has continued to ignore the pleas of the Filipino women victims who have been fighting for decades to achieve justice. Similarly, Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. refused to take up the matter with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Keshida during his most recent state visit to Japan. Joining me on today's program, Sharon Cabusao-Silva. She's the Executive Director of Lila Filipina, and she's discussing with me the issue of Filipina comfort women to Japanese military men during the occupation in World War II. I'm Sharon Cabusao-Silva. I am uh, currently the Executive Director of the Lila Filipina Center for Justice and Remembrance, which is an institution transitioned from the original organization that's called Lila Filipina. Lila Filipina is the organization of Filipino women victims of Japanese wartime sex slavery, or more commonly known as the Filipino comfort women. So Lila Filipina was established to give a direct voice to the victims um, who had suffered so much uh, since uh, World War II and who only had the chance to talk about their experience of uh, war and abuse, the trauma that they experienced during the uh, three-year Japanese occupation of the Philippines. Uh, They only got to talk about this in 1992 when an open call was made on the radio by the then Task Force on Filipino Comfort Women, uh, an alliance that uh, was led by Gabriela at the time, uh, for victims of uh, Japanese wartime military sex slavery to come forward. And so um, one by one, the women came forward until about two years later, the organization Lila Filipina was established as their organization. Can you tell us a little bit, without it being gratuitous or um, too much detail, but can you describe what happened for Filipino women during the Second World War in relation to sex slavery to the Japanese occupying forces? Mm-hmm. So um, uh there were probably thousands of Filipino women who fell victim to the war of colonization or or the war of occupation that uh, Japan um, had staged in the country from 1943 to 1945. Um, Many were abducted, taken from their homes and their communities and taken to um, 
houses, buildings, hospitals, which had been turned into garrisons by the Japanese Imperial Army. Um, most of, so um, most of these structures were turned into what were called as comfort stations or comfort houses, where the women were taken by force and made to render um, sexual services to the Japanese Imperial uh, Army, you know, the troops. They were also made to do uh, forced labor uh, by um, uh, asking them to you know, clean the house and wash the, the uniform of the soldiers who had been the, um, the, the, the rapists. You know? um, and um, this went on for many of the women. This went on for something like three weeks to three years. Um, and it was only when the um, American forces came that um, the women, most of them, were finally able to liberate themselves or to free themselves from the Japanese garrison, uh, garrisons when the Japanese Imperial Army fled uh, these structures. And um, the organization Lila Filipina came together in around the 90s, you said, when the call went out. What, yes. what is the campaign? What is the demand? What is the justice that is being sought um, for the uh, crimes, the war crimes of 43 to 45? So the demands of the Filipino comfort women uh, center on three um, three things. Now, one is a, a formal, official, and public apology from the Japanese government. Second is historical inclusion for the Japanese government to include the issue of the comfort women uh, system uh, in history teachings and textbooks in Japan. And the third would be um, official individual compensation by the Japanese go- government to the individual victims. So these were the demands that um, were raised by Lila Pilipina when it was established in 1994. And they remain as the three key demands of Lila Pilipina up to now because no justice has been served yet to the victims. Um, and it has been almost 30 years and they have exhausted almost every conceivable legal um, and political um, steps or measures that um, victims can do, but nothing yet really has been um, uh, achieved, or nothing, or the Japanese government has not really shown its um, its um, sincerity to atone for the crimes that it committed. How many of the victims are still alive? Very few of them. Um, are still are uh, are still alive, no? Other uh, le- less than twenty um, in different, but they live in different parts of the country. Um, only three of them are phys- physically still mobile or can still participate in the campaigns. Um, most of them come from rather poor families, um, and uh, they have varying medical conditions. Um, most some of them have even lost memories of the of the war uh, and of the experiences that they um, underwent during that time. So it's really a pity that the Japanese government is taking this long to uh, finally recognize the wartime crimes it committed. Um, 
almost what 75 80 years ago um and, and it's really a sad thing for many of the victims and what happened to them afterwards did most of them go on to have families and live ordinary lives and did they talk about the ongoing impact of the trauma on their lives afterwards well some of them did get married and had families some of them never got married and uh, died alone Um, and it was really several decades of living in fear living uh, with you know hiding a secret even from your own family it's actually a common story among the lolas that their children only got to know about their experiences when they already came out on television not to you know staging rallies in front of the japanese embassy and most there's such a thing as what we call the intergenerational uh, dimension of the comfort women issue most of the women never really got to finish education, for instance. Um, they never entered formal employment. They never got to travel. Some of them don't have, uh, didn't have papers. So most of them didn't really get out of the situation of poverty arising from the war. And um, because of this, many of their children also were not able to really... Um, were not really able to to transcend, you know, the situation that their parents found themselves in, um, except for a few that uh, eventually were able to finish um, education and had more or less decent uh, jobs, not to tide them over. Um, so um, that was the situation uh, that the comfort women uh, found themselves in. And for how many of them have their children, well, those that had children, how how many of them have their families picked up the fight uh, since their passing or since their incapacity? Or is it really a shame situation that um, it, it's only the women themselves that have been fighting? Yes, it was a difficult struggle for many of the women to get their families to accept uh, their stories and their narratives. No, It was quite a shock for many of the, the husbands and the children to learn about the stories. And there were cases where the husband finally leaves or the marriage breaks up because of the um, this um, uh, very feudal regard of the husband um, over the victim. Uh, being, you know, someone who had been raped by the Japanese uh, forces. Um, So it was really a process that most of them underwent. And Lila Pilipina and other supporters of the the victims really had to undertake several uh, intervention programs in order not only to help the, the victims themselves to process their experience, but also to help out the families accept and eventually help their um, grandmother or their mother um, in the fight for justice. Why is this back on the agenda at the moment? What has happened recently that has pushed this issue forward again? Um, there's the, the UN CEDAW resolution that um, states that um, the consistent inaction of the Philippine government 
um, constitutes a violation of the rights of the victims. And therefore, the victims are entitled to uh, reparations, including redress uh, from the Philippine government. So this sort of uh, push no, the, um, the issue forward again. Um, though prior to this, um, Lila Pilipina has been actively voicing out its concern, not only about justice for Filipino comfort women, but also the fact that the Japan... Um, without yet even recognizing um, the crimes that they committed in the past, has once again set foot on Philippine territory in violation of the Philippine uh, Constitution and Philippine sovereignty. Um, the, the, the Philippine government and the Japanese government, when the pre- President uh, Marcos Jr. recently visited, instead of taking up the issue of, comfort wim- of the comfort women, had talked about war, and Japan is now pushing for the formation of a U.S.-Japan-Philippines security triad, um, which will um, include forging agreements that will allow um, the conduct of war exercises by Japanese troops on Philippine soil. Um, and this is something that really concerns us, even the lolas, I mean, the comfort women, um, the grandmothers, we call them lolas in Filipino, no? even the lolas themselves, because as one lola would put it, um, she once told me that she does not actually expect to achieve justice in her lifetime. Um, but what is important for her is to is for the young people to know about their experience, and so that uh, so that um, they will so that the, what happened to them will not happen again to the young uh, women, and that uh, she opposes war. Uh, she said there should be no war again ever in this country. So the broader issues around the comfort women is an anti-war position particular uh, moment in history where we're on the brink of war. Yeah, and and linking up um, that history with what is currently happening now in various parts of the world, it was not very difficult for the Lolas to understand their important role in opposing wars of aggression as they happen in different parts of the country and supporting other women victims um, because we know that um, history is replete with instances where wars of aggression or militarist governments or dictatorial governments would spawn the problem of massive sexual violence against women. And it is an experience that they live through. Uh, it is an experience they can, um, um, uh, they can, uh, they would always want to oppose and would always not want to happen to other women. That was TreeCR Giselle's Hana speaking with Saren Cabuso Silva, the executive director of Lila Filipina, and about the recent actions of Filipina conflict women calling for long overdue justice for sexual violence crimes committed in World War II. To hear the rest of this interview, head to www.3cr.org.au and go to the Accent of Women program page on the episode 21st March. 
Excellent Women is a program by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, distributed nationally on the Community Radio Network. The program airs on 3CR every Tuesday from 8.30am to 9am. If this segment has raised any upsetting feelings or concerns for you, the following organisations can provide help. You could call Lifeline at 131114 uh, or on Wire, which is on 13001341130. This is an information and referral exchange for Victorian women, non-binary and gender diverse people. If you have experienced sexual assault or sex- sexual harassment, you could call it uh, 180- sorry, uh, sexual harassment, you could call at 18007377732. This is known as 1800 Respect, where they can provide counseling for 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And for emergencies, please dial 000. Yep, so now we're heading to a song, and this is called Waiting for the Light by Nina Rose.
Preston Life Saving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Life Saving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment, including a kiln. To find out more and to show your support for independent creatives, please visit their Facebook page, North Preston Life Saving Club. North Preston Life Saving Club is a 3CR supporter. Get up. And that was Waiting for the Light by Nina Rose. And now, uh, the critical habitat determination under provisions to environmental laws passed in 2019. With that, the Victoria Nationals Park Association, also known as BNPA, launched their first formal nomination to save a critically endangered species called the songfly. Now I'll be speaking to Executive Director of Victorian Nationals Park Association, Matt Ruckel, about what's going to happen with the VNPA's Lodge application and what this stonefly is. Hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yep, all good. How are you? Yes, great. Thank you. Good, good. All right. So before we head into the application, um, can we first know like what is this particular endangered stonefly that we're talking about here? So we're talking about the Mount Donabuang wingless stonefly, which is very unique uh, in Australia. There's not mm-hmm. many stoneflies uh, in Australia. They're quite more common in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. Um, it lives, uh, it's a very unusual bug, um, mm. and it lives in a very few small kilometres on Mount Donabuang, uh, just out of Melbourne. Um it, it's unusual for an insect in the sense that it lives for a couple of years. So many insects don't live that long. Um, and it lives in the trickles of, of headwaters of streams um, and even walks around in the snow uh, during winter. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it came up as an issue uh, really when 
there was a, a debate about construction of a mountain bike track on Mount Donabirang and through the Yarra Ranges National Park, um, and uh, it was highlighted that its habitat was uh, potentially under threat from that sort of proposal. That proposal has since uh, been restricted uh, through its environmental effects statement, mm. um, but it raised the issue to us that um, even though it is mostly in its habitat is mostly in the national park. Um, doesn't mean it's completely safe from development proposals um, and it can also need potentially uh, specialised management, particularly in the face of threats like climate change and so on. Mm, I see. And so what what has VMPD done with this lodge application for this? So um, in 2019, the, the government refreshed the state threatened species laws, the mm. Fauna and Fauna Guarantee Act, um, and they refreshed a provision called the Critical Habitat Determinations, which is where if there's a threatened species, the government can um, put a boundary around it, if you like, and put special conditions on how that area will be managed. Um, it was in uh, the legislation previously, but it's never been used. So it was used once, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, um, and never used again. Um, so we were uh, seeking... Um, to sort of push the government along to produce guidelines on how to use critical habitat determinations. Um, the legislation also allows uh, the Scientific Advisory Committee uh, to make a recommendation um, if they think a species is deserving of a critical habitat determination. Mm. So we just went straight to the Scientific Advisory Committee and put in a proposal I'm trying to fulfil the sort of various legal requirements uh, mm. that were outlined in the legislation. Mm, I see. And then when after if this application is uh, s- successful, what, what can it help with to protecting well, the not, system? Oh, we're sorry? still not quite sure whether it is successful. Um, mm. It was considered, um, and I think there's still ongoing discussions. Um, there's sort of two things we'd like to see happen. One, uh, the government starts to use critical habitat determinations uh, more widely. Um, mm-hmm. There's now almost 2,000 threatened species on Victoria's threatened species list. Um, there's a, about 30% of those are what's called critically endangered, so that's the last step towards before they're extinct in the wild. Mm-hmm. And Victoria's unique. There's a lot of species in Victoria, like the stonefly, that live in um, small areas, uh, yeah. endemic. They only occur in Victoria. And this sort of mechanism... Uh, could be very useful for fighting mm-hmm. um, our extinction crisis. I see, and yeah, let's let's talk a bit more about this stonefly. Can we like what what's so special about it? Like, well, it's special because it, it doesn't exist anywhere else. It's got mm-hmm. a large stonefly, um, yep. and it, like I said earlier, it does live for quite a long time. So mm-hmm. it's unique, um, only occurring in that very small, you know, couple of square kilometres. Area right up high on the on the mountain, um, so uh, it would be a species that's not particularly well studied. <laughs> but there is one scientist in Victoria who's you know spent a lot of time on it, mm. um, so we're lucky. So there's a lot of species like that that we are cryptic um, and we don't necessarily know a heap about them because people haven't necessarily done the work. Mm. But it's one that could be. Uh, because of its very small range, um, it's very 
uh, dependent on these sort of trickles. Um, yep. Not so much like a stream, but a trickle um, for its life cycle. Um, very vulnerable to threats, um, uh, including yeah, construction, but also potentially things like climate change. So there are, if we want to stay extinction-free um, uh, in Victoria, we need to really knuckle down and start focusing on some of these species. I see. And just 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 wondering, is, uh, what what exactly are they very uh, vulnerable to? Is it the weather, or is it more of like the whole thing of like constructions, and then there's going to be the pollution? Yeah, we were very worried about um, the development, recreational uh, mountain bike tracks, yep. which would have an impact on its habitat. So, a lot of that was uh, knocked out as part of the environmental effects statement. So, the main tracks were were seem to be inappropriate, partly due to the stone flow and partly to the impact on rainforest. But there's still a couple of tracks that were potentially um, talked about as being options mm. if there were no uh, stone fly records. Um, so we uh, that's one of the drivers for this area. There could also be future challenges, you know, roads um, or new facilities. And so the Land managers need to be very aware of the stonefly and having a formal critical habitat determination will help with that. I see. So we, we can basically say that um, right now the best the best thing to do is to stop this mountain biking trail from being a confirmed project because if this starts, then that might be the ones continue to come. And then this and this, this first one can already really affect the, the population of the stonefly. Yeah, that's right. So if, if this project does I think this project's largely stalled because of the environmental effects statement process, mm. in the park anyway, um, but that doesn't mean there's not another project coming in the wings. Um, and so we, we thought, you know, most national parks are very uh, strong in terms of protecting areas, uh, mm. but obviously not strong enough because there's still these sorts of proposals come up. Uh, so the extra layer of protection... Uh, you know, really makes it clear once and for all that it's a special place and a special species. Mm, I see. And um, I think, yeah, that's that's basically um, what I'll be uh, asking you about, chatting regarding the stonefly. Um, but uh, just before I let you go, Matt, um, can I just ask... Um, what what can we do to help support this cause? And what, what, what can our listeners do? Uh, well, I think at uh, this stage, so uh, there's a whole lot of information on the VNPA uh, website, so mm-hmm. uh, um about these issues and many others. Um, I think uh, we'll be setting up a supporter uh, thing online for people to write to the relevant decision makers, so um, sign up to our newsletter and get involved. Um, it's a really great way to ensure uh, Victoria's unique nature is protected. Yep, awesome, and uh, yeah, I hope I hope I, I hope uh, people get to also research more into this Madonna stonefly because I'm I'm quite certain that uh, this is just a specific species, right? And there's also and like stonefly is a big name for like the the this I would say category of flies in general. Is that correct? Yeah. So look, there's, there's lots of threatened species uh, mm-hmm. in Victoria, um, and there's. Three or four hundred of them are critically endangered. So there's mm. plants as well as other insects. Uh, there's fungi, but also, uh, you know, the more high-profile things like greater gliders and um, uh, 
uh, uh, things like that, uh, which are all on the threatened species list. And we really need um, the government to use the threatened species laws they've got, um, implement them, use the tools that are in the legislation uh, to ensure those species survive into the future. Mm, I see. All right. Um, thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Take care. So that was Executive Director of Victorian National Parks Association, um, Matt Ruckel, speaking on the application to save the critically endangered species uh, called the Mount Dona Stonefly. And yeah, next up, we've got a song for you. Uh, sorry. Yep, we got a song for you. This is called Tired Eyes by Kutja Edwards. Darkness is near Loneliness is what I fear You come comfort me Leave the thoughts at my door To talk to ignore Give us light to see Now that you're gone Memory now lives on In the faces of the ones That you give life Longer in so much pain Down the road I'll see you again But we need you to know That we'll be alright We will always love you Memories are ours to keep So close Those tired eyes Go to sleep Go
Jacqueline, but on the Che Guevara Highway, filling up with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over the luxury's disappointment, so he walks over and he's trying to sympathize with her. But he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner. Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell. The first hurdle. only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer and someone asking questions and basking in the light of the 15 fame-filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics he asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment And my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the right leap forward Jungle sales are organised There's still parties to be hosted You can be active with the activists Or sleeping with the sleepers While you're waiting for the drive to leap forwards Oh, one leap forwards, two leap back Will politics get me the sack? Waiting for the drive to leap forwards Well, here comes the future and you can't run for it If you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it Right, please, over. 
Jazz Jammers present the third Newport Jazz Festival. 50 bands, multiple venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians, the 21st to the 23rd of April. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Get your tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office, Market Street, Newport or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au. Let's get the party started at the friendliest festival in the West, Newport Jazz Festival, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM. Or you're listening from the website. Um, welcome. <laughs> welcome back. Um, anyways, uh that was the first song was Tired Eyes by Kutcher Edwards and then followed by Waiting for the Great Leap by Billy Bragg. Now, a recent Australian media landscape report, 2022, sorry, yep, it was put, it was put out with the survey's findings that about almost many journalists feel that Public interest journalism uh, was threatened last year, and obviously it's it still continues. Um, and I speak to managing director of MediaNet and MediaNet Insights, uh, Amrita Sidhu, about the recent survey, a survey findings on defamation laws and public interest journalism. Hi, Amrita. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very good, thank you. Good, good. Awesome. So, uh, can we first, can we first let you share about the few key findings of the, the survey results? Yes, absolutely. Very happy to. Mm-hmm. Um, so, just by way of some context and background, this is an annual media landscape report mm-hmm. that MediaNet has produced for the last um, six or seven years. Mm-hmm. We produce it annually and we survey um, over a thousand journalists 
uh, across October and November 2022. And we also surveyed um, just under 300 PR and communication professionals. And we ask them um, very similar questions and then we look for commonalities and differences. Now, out of those thousands um, respondents in the journalist sector, uh, I think just to give you some understanding of which parts of media they came from, yep. 64% worked in digital journalism. And I think these days, you just mentioned um, right there, people might be listening online. So there's a degree of digital in everything that um, we do in the mm-hmm. journalism sector. Mm-hmm. 44% worked in print, um, 21% that they worked in radio, 13% said TV and 10% podcasting. So, you know, a pretty broad um, brush there in terms of um, the areas of media that the respondents are working for. Yep. Now, you just touched at your intro there, Grace, on mm-hmm. the absolute standout figure for me, and that was the one around defamation laws in Australia mm-hmm. and public interest journalism, which, which 98% of those 1,000-plus respondents that they believed had been threatened Mm. in 2022. And almost half of journalist respondents, so 49% said that they had withheld publishing information that they knew to be true because of fear of defamation. So it's undoubtedly, you know, a topic of debate and great importance for our media industry. Mm, Definitely. And uh, what, 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 what were the few things that, the journalists said, like roughly, like what 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 were their main views regarding this? Yes, so um, I mentioned that uh, um, you know half of them had withheld um, from mm-hmm. publishing information they knew to be true um, because of fear of defamation, and forty one percent also responded and said that they believe that defamation laws in Australia are too strict in mm-hmm. relation to the media. Now, when I look at some of the comments that came through, because there is a comment um, part of um, the survey in mm-hmm. response to um, the harder data, yep. and that um, the, the comments kind of reflect a few points, and, and I'll just um, mention them to you and happy to kind of expand on, on some of these as well. Mm-hmm. But um, respondents kind of commented about how the current defamation laws make it difficult to hold powerful people and institutions accountable, which is, you know, a fundamental role of Mm. journalism. Um, Respondents also commented about how some of these defamation laws make it difficult to investigate issues of sexual abuse, you know, which has been a prominent um, thing in society and in in media in the last few years. Mm. And many editors and publishers said that lawyers at the media organisations they work for are highly risk conservative or risk averse when it comes to potentially publishing defamatory information because of the financial risks um, if the company gets taken to court. Um, And I think, you know, there were a lot of comments about um, the role that journalists um, play in holding, um, you know, people accountable and in the public interest and protecting information. So that was the kind of sentiment that came through from some of the comments. I see. And uh, could you expand a bit on uh, when you mentioned uh, they were wary of the when they when they write about or uh, report about the sexual abuse section? Is 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 that is that in, is that in the sense because of privacy per, uh, reasons or is it more of like? Um, worrying about the consequences of the defamation. 
I think it's more, it was more worrying about the consequences of yep. the um, defamation. Uh, I, I mean, as I said, half of them may withhold a story which they know to be true because mm. of the consequences of the, of the defamation. And um, ultimately, I, I would say the journalists take guidance from the um, position of the media organisation they work with and any legal advice um, that they would get. So, you know, increasingly, um, I think this is becoming a factor. And I'm going to read a quote from yep. um, one of the comments. Um, all the results were anonymised. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, this is an anonymous comment. And mm-hmm. it says this, defamation laws have a chilling effect on reporting, particularly on political corruption and sexual misconduct, as cautious media publishers understand how costly a potential defamation action can be. Mm, I see. And and now coming to this um, whole thing about defamation laws in Australia, why are journalists uh, why why are we so why are so wary of the defamation laws? How strict is it here in Australia? So um, you know we had forty um, odd percent um, believe that uh, that defamation laws in Australia are are too strict. Um, when you look at um, the ACT in particular, so um, I guess journalists based out of the ACT are reporting more on political news. They, the, the respondents there had the highest rate, um, saying that 62% of the respondents out of the ACT region felt that the defamation laws um, were, were too strict. Now, I actually hosted a panel a few weeks ago, Grace, mm-hmm. um, where we spoke about the results of this survey, similar to what we're speaking about now. Mm-hmm. And I had the privilege of um, Deb Camden, who is a you know powerhouse um, in the Australia media and um, communications and, and PR space. And she mentioned a statistic that um, in the last couple of years in the UK, there had been, um, I think the number was just over 200 defamation cases across all of UK. And in the same period, we had had a similar amount of defamation cases just in New South Wales. Oh, my God. And how how long was this in the span of? Is it in a year? I think it was a, a two-year period, if I recall correctly. Nice. So uh, that was quite eye-opening, even to me, having, you know, being part of the team and led the team that's put the report together, is just to see um, see that comparison. And I think, you know, she the, the information that Deb highlighted on that panel was really kind of eye-opening for everyone that was also listening to that particular, um, you know, web event that we ran. Um, and I think that really speaks to this point about the strictness of defamation laws in Australia, perhaps compared to some of the other countries. Mm, I see. And then, yeah, it's a very big difference, especially because like it was just about 200 cases just in uh, the in a st- one state alone as compared to in the UK where it was in the entire country. And then um, with, with, um, and, and with the survey, actually, uh, the journalists, the number of journalists that you interview is, uh, I would say it's like ratio, ratioed properly, right, in the number of people you ask according to like the, in the entire Australia. Yes, absolutely. I uh, um, I believe that it's well representative of um, the media um, groups within um, Australia. There was both higher, um, larger organisations that um, were part of the survey, as well as some of um, the smaller media companies. And you know, I'll, I'll share this 
quote with you that we received from someone um, on this topic of, of defamation from mm-hmm. a smaller media organisation who perhaps doesn't have, you know, the powerhouse legal team sitting up on level five, um, you know, to, to give them that extra protection or to review their content mm-hmm. before it gets published. So uh, the quote said this, working for a small organisation, my biggest fear is a wealthy person suing us for defamation and litigating us out of business with court costs. And I, I think that's something a lot of us uh, in small, small, uh, I would say companies and and also even like even like community radio like us, like we, that's something we fear, especially because um, a lot of wealthy people think that they can uh, easily win a court case over us just because we are not yeah. we don't have a big name as compared to like the ABC or like the age or the Herald Sun. Yes, yes. And I think if you look at this in the inverse, Grace, mm-hmm. so how many respondents said that um, the, the defamation laws in Australia were just right? Uh, only 22% oh. said that they um, that they felt it was just right. So, um, you know, uh, 33% were um, saying that they, you know, they have mixed opinions and then 41% said that, it was too strict, like like I've been um, mentioning. Uh, so, you know, I definitely think it's a very topical, very important um, mm. point for us to be discussing. Um, there are a number of defamation, high-profile defamation cases in the news at the moment involving media organisations. So, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's very topical and I think it's a very important topic of um, debate and importance within media at the moment. Mm, definitely. And then with this... And all these things that have been uh, happening with the defamation laws, and obviously people feel that you know because of these, they are being hindered from uh, reporting what is the actual truth and what uh, should be the truth. And so, with that, um, how, how do they feel like with this? How do they feel like the public interest has been threatened? Well, um, you know, as I mentioned there, um, the role of um, journalism for um, for extremely long time has been to hold. Um, people in power to hold, um, you know, government to hold organisations to account and to share information that's important for, um, you know, a person, member of the public like you and me, things that we should be aware of. So if you're going to stop yourself doing something or second-guess doing something, then um, by nature the public interest will um, will get, you know, impacted. I think the other side of this equation here. Uh, that's worth mentioning, uh, that's separate to the defamation laws, but probably plays into some of the thinking and, um, you know, the current challenges that our journalists um, fear and, and have concerns about, is that 69% of journalists said that they had experienced online written abuse or trolling, mm. and 53% experienced it in person, verbal abuse or harassment. Um, and in particular, those that report on crime and court and those that work in TV had very high response rates in terms of um, the level of abuse that they had felt maybe compared to some of those that just, just worked um, in online media. So I think that's another um, interesting aspect uh, and perhaps the other side of this equation. So the journalists are already feeling concerned about defamation, you know, fear of um, yeah. repercussions. And then when they are doing their work from and they're trying to do the right thing 
by public interest, there also the sentiment comes across very strongly in the survey results that um, they are experiencing abuse and harassment. And that was, um, you know, a big play into some findings as well about burnout, um, mental health, uh, was also a, a big challenge for journalists during the survey period as well. Mm, definitely. And then with all of that that came down, then there's, there's also still the another problem of the gender pay gap. Yes, mm. yes. It's surprising, isn't it, that, that we um, still are seeing that um, result. Uh, in my opinion, we shouldn't be, uh, but I think, you know, it's, it's quite reflective. So about a third of all respondents that were mm. male. Mm-hmm. Um, that disclose their income earn more than $100,000 per annum mm-hmm. uh, compared to only 20% of females who disclose their income that earned more than $100,000 per annum. Now, it was slightly, uh, there was a slight decrease in that gender pay gap compared mm-hmm. to 2021 findings, which is good. I mean, it's showing, you know, a marginal movement in the right direction. Um, but I think more than just the gender pay gap is, um, when you look at the higher roles within media, so um, the chief of staff, um, publisher, the presenter, or the um, management layers in media, then, you know, the skew of men holding those positions um, is significantly higher. So, again, there were some um, very important comments, I think, that came through from um, the respondents saying that, they believed um, that there needs to be more work done to have gender balance, gender equality at the senior levels of media organisations. Mm, I see. All right, um, Amrita, we, we don't have much time left, unfortunately. Just one last question from you. Uh, what can we do to uh, address the representation and support for journalists of diverse backgrounds and here in Australia? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think what we can do is we can just remind ourselves that journalists are, um, you know, doing what they can to bring us the news and information that matters to us. They are frontline um, workers. They are a frontline industry, and and we sometimes forget that. Mm. And I would say, you know, um, have respect for the industry. It remains incredibly vital uh, to to the Australian society, to the to the global society. And yeah, I would say, you know, it's a it's a really um, fundamental service that we're all on the receiving end of. So just support where you can. Um, you know, be kind uh, to be kind to the media, even if you have an opinion that's at different odds um, to them. And um, yeah, and just you know, I think we should be mindful of how much information we do get from um, the media and the journalist sector. Mm, yep, definitely. And again, we're all humans, so we all deserve some um, good amount of respect as well. <laughs> Absolutely, very well said. All right, thank you so much, Amrita. My pleasure, Grace. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. That was Managing Director of MediaNet and MediaNet Insights, Amrita Sidhu, speaking about the recent media landscape uh, survey findings that were just released on journalists' views about defamation, employment, pay and challenges. Yeah, so that's all we have for today. How how did you think of all the segments today, Sanera? Um, Yeah, definitely we had... Um, a packed show today and your um and yeah that was really interesting hearing about the survey and you know just um how how many journalists um you know 
withheld information out, out of fear and it was just really concerning. I think it's really hindering um, quality journalism mm. here in Australia and, um, you know, the media, I guess the media monopoly and um, the defamation, uh, defamation laws as well do not help, um, do not help this case. Yeah. And as um, an emerging journalist, we, we're both emerging journalists. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a final year. Yeah, we're kind of concerned, uh, you know, what our work will be like at the future, um, whether um, these defamation laws and the media monopoly will, um, you know, play into the work we do. Mm, definitely. And, and it will affect um, our, yeah, our journalism. Um, you know, I don't know how much control we have, but still hoping for the best. Yeah, and especially because like, we're, so, we're still so new and raw, um, very naive about what is go- what happens in the, distri- in the industry and what can happen. So, like, yeah, I hope that we get to be able to tackle this, this challenge and overcome it. Yeah, and yeah, a lot of other things that we're talking about also were very interesting, the insects, and I just hope people, yeah, be aware that a lot of critical endangered insects there. And then also... Yeah, b- remember about the things that happened during World War Two about the conflict women in Philippines. So mm-hmm. yeah, and also, and to everyone who's celebra- celebrating Ramadan, I hope you have a Ramadan Mubarak. Yeah, thank, uh, thank you. Yeah, I'm also um, participating in Ramadan this year. Um, also to everyone, uh, any of our listeners who are participating in Ramadan this year, please um, take care of yourself and consider your physical and mental health. Um, don't push yourself too much, but also um, have a fulfilling Ramadan. Um, hope you get the best out of it. And with that, um, yeah. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, see you all next week where we'll have some uh, new guests and exciting things to talk about. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.